0: Well, in the last chapter, you probably remembered, in chapter 5, Paul was talking about coming to them, and he asked them, should I come to you with a rod or with gentleness, remember? A rod or with gentleness? And so I found a little video that I think we should watch to see what it might be like to come with a rod to help a church become the perfect church.
1: this season on Top Church. The only reason I'd attend this church is if I was in a hearse. One man is on a mission to find the perfect church. Well, here's the sanctuary. Got a whole different kind of pew in here, don't you? If you can't find the perfect church, he'll berate and harass one lucky congregation into perfection. Morning. You call that a handshake? You dress yourself this morning. I've been greeted better at the DMV. How many people do you think you turned right on out of the parking lot when they saw you? Has to be double digits! Now I'm a Muslim. A Muslim, that's right. I'm a visitor who's now walking down the street to a mosque where they can put a bulletin in my hand. So I'm a Muslim! Thanks to you! Who are these people? Do you have have any sort of quality control? Just let anybody in here, don't you? Are you kidding me? Here we go. Where's your long hair or your highlights? You got a v-neck? No, of course not. How about some skinny jeans? Sure, pick on the worship leader. Easy target. This is an outrage. I This is the tightest facing I've seen in Nile in eight seasons of coaching churches. Eight seasons! Atrocious! Abysmal! Atheistic! This is so bad, it makes me question the existence of God. Oh. And this coffee, because it was brewed by Satan himself. Which might actually be in your favor, because I want someone to pray for me now. Oh, you don't know. Alright, well, then get out! She's won! We haven't gone over David and Bathsheba. Oh, well, then you get out! Okay. So. Could we just pick a tempo? Is enough, I think. This is good, this is good. The message is on suffering, so perfect. I know we're in Matthew right now, but just put your thumb. The message is supposed to make us think about eternity, not feel eternal itself. Alright? And have it? quest for perfection continues on another exciting season of Tom Church. They said it couldn't be done, but I think I finally did it. The perfect church!
0: How do you get the perfect church? You just don't have anybody in it, right? That's the, that's the key, so, uh, and he did that. So, uh, Anyway, as we go through, we talk about 1 Corinthians. We know that they were not a perfect church. Now were they, right? And we're going to continue to go on to see some of the things that they were dealing with. And they had a specific problem that he addresses. Remember I said at the beginning that often these passages or uh, these books of the Bible are an occasional nature. They're you know going uh, talking about particular subjects, issues that the church itself was dealing with. And this is one particular issue he really goes after them on. And he is uh, not messing around when it comes to trying to straighten them out. And so we'll see that this morning. It says... In chapter 5, verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So there is a man who's having a relationship with his father's wife. Now, it does not seem like this is his biological mother from what we understand, but so it's either his stepmother or maybe... Um, his father passed away, and so he's with his stepmother. Maybe there was a divorce, something like that. But there's a situation in which a son is with his father's wife. And what makes this interesting is that this was completely not allowed by the pagan world. And so as we go on to verse 2, um, we see it says, oh, excuse me. We go on to this quote. It says, marrying your father's wife was banned under Roman law by Augustus between 18 and and 16 BC. See, they didn't even allow it in Roman law. That's why it says that it's not even allowed among the Gentiles. And you say, well, why was it not allowed under Roman law? Like, what's the deal? What's the problem? Why wasn't it allowed? And it's probably this it's likely what would happen is a son would want to be able to take the dowry that was offered by the wife when the marriage happened. And apparently, one way they might try to secure the dowry is by marrying their father's wife, and therefore in order to secure it. So that's why they may have made it illegal in Roman law in order to be able to kind of fix that and keep that from happening. But if we look at Leviticus 18.8, it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. So It was also not allowed in Old Testament law. So it was not allowed in the Old Testament. So the Jews knew it was wrong. It shouldn't have been allowed among The Gentiles, yet this is what's going on in the church of Corinth. So really what's interesting about this is this passage is really a lot less about this particular sin and dealing with this person who's sinning. It's actually more about the way the church responded to this sin. This is about response to sin more than it is about this individual sin itself. And we'll see that. And Paul is quite upset with how the people have responded to this. So we go on to verse 2 and it says, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgments on the one who has done such things. See, what was going on here is there was someone who's doing a really bad thing. And they didn't want to do anything about it. And why didn't they want to do about it? Well, let me do something about it. Well, let me give you a few suggestions. One thing is, if this person was a very influential person in the church, they wouldn't want to do anything about it. And Paul himself says, I pronounce judgment. And he might be saying this because this, when you would take someone to court back then, you had to be of the same social status. So for example, if you were a Roman citizen, a non-Roman citizen could not take you to court. It was not allowed. So in America, we can sue whoever we want, for better or for worse, but you're, there's no situation in which you, know, you can't sue someone who's of some sort of different ilk than you, and that's how it was then. And so maybe they thought, well, this person is of a different you know, societal plane than I am, and so Roman law doesn't allow me to do it, so we can't do it to them either. And so this person was able to kind of act with impunity because the church was afraid to go against him. And so because of this, he was able to do this terrible thing and the church did nothing about it. And Paul says, no, no, I'll judge him. I'll judge him, right? Paul is a Roman citizen. So Paul says, no, I, I'm not going to let this stand. Then we go on to verse 4. It says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my, sp- and my spirit is present with the power of of our Lord. Jesus says, I'm not saying this because I think it's the right thing to do, but this is clearly in line with the teachings of Christ, right? We can be strong. We can be confident when it's the teachings of Christ. So often there's things that go on in our life, go on in the church that are kind of opinions, you know, should we make the, you know, should we make the sanctuary the color it is now or white, right? We can all debate on what color we think that is, but when it's something comes from Christ, This we can be confident, this we can be sure in, this we do not have to apologize for, this we do not have to have committee meetings for, this we do not have to debate, right? This is something that we can be sure of. We go on to verse 5, it says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Well, we know destruction certainly includes excommunication, but what else is it? What does this mean? This is quite a confusing phrase. Destruction of the flesh. Why would we turn someone over to Satan? Why would we deliver anyone to Satan? Doesn't seem like, that seems like a kind of a bad idea, doesn't it? Why would we do such a thing? Let me give you two options. The first is this. You've probably heard the idea that someone has to hit rock bottom before they'll turn things around. You've probably heard that phrase. I'm sure it's been true in some people's lives. I'm not sure it's always true. If you're going the wrong direction, I think I think it is possible to turn around at any time. You don't have to keep getting worse. You can turn around. But you know we under we understand the idea, right? Sometimes people have to suffer the consequences, realize what's going on before they're willing to turn around. And maybe that's what this means. So we're delivering over to Satan. We're letting him have the consequences of this life. We're letting him see what sin is really like. Let him really taste it. And when that happens, he'll ultimately turn back to the Lord and he may be saved in that way. And that's one option. That's kind of the option I've really always taken. But as I studied it this time around, I actually decided to change my thoughts and make it option number two. And that's this. You deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Think forward with me, and this might be hard to do if you're not familiar with it. But if you think forward to First Corinthians 11, so when we have communion, we often read—at uh, least I only read a few verses out of it—but we talk about First Corinthians 11. We'll do some quotes. This is my body, so on and so forth. It's actually a little bit ironic when we do communion and we don't quote from Matthew or Mark or Luke or one of the Gospels. We quote from First Corinthians, and First Corinthians is a quote from the Gospels, but. We use it because it's a little smoother and a little easier to use. So that's why I use it. But if you look at the context of all of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, when it's talking about communion there, it talks about some people who are abusing communion, who are doing it incorrectly, have gotten to the point that they have gotten to where God is punishment to the point of physical harm, physical death. There's actually like a physical thing that happens in which they Suffer consequences. Not a spiritual consequence, but a physical consequence. And so when you do things that are away from God, you know, we, we, we sin, we do foolish things. Often they do have physical consequences, right? If you wanna you, you wanna abuse certain substances your whole life, you're gonna you're gonna pay for it, right? You're gonna pay for it and so on. And many sins are like this. You wanna you know be sure your sure your sins will find you out right i'm not sure i need to give a lot of examples i think we've all done things in our lives that we wish we wouldn't have and and we and we paid for it later and so these consequences sometimes are actually physical and it seems like at some point sometimes god actually provides these consequences another explanation that might be even easier to understand than my one from 1 Corinthians would be Ananias and Sapphira, if you're familiar with that story, right? Ananias comes forward, he says, Oh, this, I, I sold everything. I promise I'm giving you all the money from my land. And he lies about it because he kept part of it from himself. And what does God do with Ananias when he lies? Drops him dead, right? There were physical consequences to his sin. And when Sapphira, his wife, comes and she provides the same lie, what does she receive? Boom, same physical consequences that Ananias did. And so I think this might actually be physical consequences. That, that is the punishment, that something might actually negative happen to you physically. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I obviously recently changed my view. Maybe I'll change back someday. But there's a couple options for you, but I think that's what it is. We go on to verse 6. It says, Your boasting is not good. See, they not only ignored what was going on, but they, like, defended it. Like they didn't just like brush it under the lug and try to pretend it was happening, but if you might question about it, they'd actually kind of like, oh no, it's okay. It's okay. I mean, it uses even the word boasting, which is a pretty strong word, right? Like they were okay with it and they it had become public enough that they publicly defend it. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? It continues this idea of a leaven as leaven as we go on to verse 7. It says this. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. See, we as Christians, we're not a creature that God took and like patched over the holes in our lives. We're supposed to be a new creature, something new, something that we start over. You know, so often when you do a project, sometimes you can restore things that are old and they end up beautiful, but sometimes it's just, I need to throw this thing away and start over. You know, I just need to build it new. So often in construction, it is easier to do that. And that's like how our Christian lives are. We, we're not just a patch over of the old. God has made us something new. And of course, unfortunately, we have the, the flesh that holds us back while we're here on this earth. But we have been provided a new spirit, a new nature, and there's lots of debate on how, what all that means. But we are something new. And so we go, it says in Exodus, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. He mentions leaven here in Corinthians because leaven was oftentimes used for sin. Maybe not always, but very regularly. And if you I'm I'm not a cook, you know, I'm going to talk about this in complete ignorance, but apparently if you have bread and you put leaven in it, right, the whole bread rises. And so, when they were preparing for the Passover, they wouldn't eat this type of bread, the leaven, because it stood for sin, and they wanted to focus on purity. And it says in verse 8, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and of evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See that you're not supposed to be celebrating this evil thing that they've done, right? You're supposed to have, you're supposed to be a new creation, not malice. Like that kind of speaks to your, your motives or sincerity's true motives. And then he talks about something more concrete with good and evil. And he goes on to verse 9 and he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. So he says, in, I wrote to you in my letter. Do you remember how many Corinthian letters are there that we know of? There's four, right? There's four. And this is actually 1 Corinthians technically like 2 Corinthians, but we call it 1 Corinthians. And what do we call the first one? The previous letter, right? The previous letter. So he mentions this previous letter and what he says is in it, don't associate with sexual morale people. And I want to talk about that just a second, you know? So often we think about sexual immorality and we often think about what other people outside of the church are doing and how bad it is. Look how bad the world's getting. Look how bad this is. Look how bad they are. Look how bad, oh, the society's going bad. I, I'm not saying that's all wrong, but that, that tends sometime can really be our focus. I'm going to focus on on how terrible this person is, or all the affairs these famous people are having, or someone's, and that's what we think about, and that's what we think about. And, and Steve and I were even talking about this morning, we say, we say this, like, what do we expect? If you're not a Christian, if you're not, they're not, if someone's not following Christ, are we supposed to hold them to some kind of moral standard? Like, well, how come you're not doing what's right? How come you're not doing, like, right? why would they? If you're not a Christian, you're not following Christ, if your life goal is something like, I just don't want to do my best for myself, then what do you do? You look at your life, you try to evaluate what's best for yourself, and you do it. And you do it. And if that's something that Christians might call immoral, what do you care? What do you care? And so we're so often so worried about what non-believers are doing and the immorality they're conducting. I'm like, of course. What do we expect? And what does he say here in verse 10? not at all meaning the sexual immoral people of the world. He's saying, I'm not telling you to separate from the immoral people of the world. That's not what I'm trying to say. That's not what I meant in my previous letter. Or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Like, there was a group that did this. They were called the Aseans. As a matter of fact, if you... Kind of know a little bit about the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found that was probably kept by the Essenes. They were a group that separated themselves from the world. They decided they no longer wanted to live in regular society. They went out and created their own camp out in the desert, which is why some of those documents stayed so... Um, they sta- They kept around so long because they were out in the desert in the dry climate, and so the paper didn't rot as well, so it stayed longer. But the reason they were out in the desert was because they were separating themselves from the world. Like... Really separating. We are making our own way. But what does he say here? Not the people of the world. Not the people that are swindlers. Not the people. No. If we were going to do that, what would we have to do? We would have to leave the world. We would need to go out of the world. We are to win people for Christ. We are to show them that they can have a relationship with Christ and that will change their life. Why would you change your life without Christ? Why? Why would you do anything other than what's best for me? Why would you? So our message to the world is not be good, be good, be good. Our message to the world is have this relationship with Jesus Christ and it will change you. You'll be good because of Christ, not because I'm going to harp on you that you're supposed to do what's right. We'll go on to verse 11. It says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a person. Now, I've heard it said that maybe this eating has to do with communion, but it really probably isn't that. It probably means you do not have lunch with this person anymore. Why? Why so harsh? Because in the same way as I sat here and ranted and raved about how someone who's not a Christian, they, they don't know any better. Why wouldn't they just do their own thing? In the same exact way, a Christian, someone who knows what's right, they know better. We know better. We know better. When a kid does something that's wrong and they knew they shouldn't have done it, what do you do? You punish them. When a really young kid does something that they didn't know what that was wrong, what do you do? You teach them. You teach them a better way. And we as Christians, we know better. This is why Paul is so incredibly harsh. You know, there's this doctrine, it's usually called um, church discipline. May have heard of it termed that way. Should we practice I see, I see articles, I, never, I I usually don't read them, but should we practice church discipline? Should we practice church discipline? I'm like, well, I mean, should I quit reading 1 Corinthians? Should I quit reading church 1 Corinthians? You no, know, church discipline, discipline is a thing in which someone is doing what they know is wrong, they know better, and when they are confronted, they say, and I'm gonna keep doing it. I mean, it's not a situation where every time we sin, we get kicked out of church or we'd, we'd be empty, just like our video, right? We're, of course, all going to make mistakes. The question is whether we're going to make mistakes. The question is if we are doing something we should not be doing and we are called out on it, are we willing to make the change? Are we willing to do something different? And maybe we even fall back and make more mistakes in that same area because we, we all struggle. But the point at which we say, no, I am going to do what's wrong, and I'm going to keep doing it. What did it say about this person who'd been sleeping with their father's wife? They were boasting about it, right? We're going to do it, and we're going to keep doing it. It was not a, yes, I'm sorry, I'll try not to do it, and I failed, and I'm going back and forth. It was a defiance. And this should be met with strength. We go on to verse 12. It says, For what have I to do with judging others? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Who does he say we should judge? Like, we are on a solid, like, we're on the same playing field. We're all trying to follow Christ. And at the point at which, one of us is decided, I'm not going to do what God clearly commands believers to do, then, because we're on the same playing field, we can say, uh-uh, 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 uh is not right. That is not right. Of course, one comes, then two, then a group, and we know that from Matthew. But when you're having someone who's an unbeliever, who's playing by a whole different set of rules, they don't care about our rules. Reaching them with rules is not going to work. We might be able to use the Old Testament law to say something like, we've all sinned right we you know this is wrong and and we've all sinned we've all made mistakes we need salvation that we can maybe use some some rules for in the in evangelism but as far as saying we want to just impress morals on people who are not christians this is not what paul's talking about we can impress morals on one another try to keep each other accountable and that's what we need to do we go on to verse 13 it says god judges those outside purge the evil person from among you. Talking about purging evil, evil in Israel was common. This is a quote. We're not even sure what passage it's from about purging, but it was done all the time in Israel. And this is clear. we need to purge evil from among you. And the last phrase I want you to think about here this morning is, we need to be stern with those that know better. We need to be stern with those that know better. And finally, as we go to this last song, the, the song's called Refiners Fire. It's been around for a long time. It was one of my favorites when I we was a kid. It's so like when you sit around the campfire, you know, you talk about the fire. But it starts out, purify my heart. Purify my heart. As we think about this purging of evil, you know, so often we don't know each other well enough to know whether we're really doing anything wrong, right? I mean, I, I'm not in your house. I, I'm not on your computer. I, I don't know what you're doing or not doing. And oftentimes, we need to be able, in the same way we keep each other accountable, we need to look at our own lives and keep ourselves accountable too. Because some things are secret sins that no one else can find, that no one else knows, that no one else can confront. And we need to look to ourselves and say, I need to purify my heart. I need to be cleansed from within. So let's pray and we'll sing Refiner's Fire. Dear Lord, we just thank you for this. Wonderful morning. And as we think about this passage and think about the importance of purity, Lord, we just pray that you would refine our hearts. That we, maybe some things that no one else knows, that no one else would ever confront us on, that we would have the integrity to look deep within and purify our hearts. But we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.